Paul has been uh, walking us as we have been seeing through this program of spiritual development, spiritual maturity as he's been writing uh, the letter to the Thessalonian church. We've just uh, seen this progression that in chapter one, he, he wrote regarding the birth of the church, uh, how they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and what that looked like in chapter two, he shared about his efforts to nurture the church as a parent. He talked about his relation to the ship to them as, as that of like a mother uh, nursing her young. And he talked about his relationship uh, to the church as that of a father, how he exhorted and encouraged them in the things of the Lord. And that as he uh, in that parental pastoral kind of role cared for them, the growth that resulted and then last week when we were in chapter 3, Paul just uh, shared his concern that the church would learn to stand in the Lord. And he told us, it reported to them, and, and we read about how he shared Timothy. Uh, and he sent Timothy to the city of Thessalonica to just uh, to do that work and, and to take on that effort of seeing that the church be established and strengthened in the faith, that they would learn to stand in, in the midst of the things that they were going through. And now as we come to chapter 4, it's just this continual pattern of what you see in the physical realm, birth, growth, and nurture, learning to stand. Now he's going to turn about, talk about walking in the Lord and uh, learning to walk in the will of God. And it, it's going to be with this increasing measure, more and more, that God's people learn to live the life that pleases God. And so he says this in verse 1, he says, finally... Now, it just makes me laugh right there, you know. I, I don't know why Paul says finally, because he's like three-fifths of his way through the message. You know, Paul was the kind of preacher that when he said finally, you just adjusted yourself in the seat and got a little more comfy for a few more minutes, because he's not done. Okay? Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And so the conversation where Paul's about to go here is he's going to talk about living to please God. What does that look like? What is the manner of life that we are to live as followers of Jesus Christ and to please him? And he, and he tells us here that this is a matter of growth. This is something that we do so more and more. And the Thessalonians, you know, they had been taught by Paul they were doing what Paul had taught them to do and what he is asking them uh, and what he is urging them towards is more. Do it more. You know, it's like, it's like the toddler who's learned to walk and has made the first steps from the couch to the coffee table. And then you add, that, that toddler adds steps and makes their way to the, you know, the fireplace mantle or wherever it is, some chair across the living room. There's, you know, you, you don't take the new toddler to the stairs and say, here, here you go, give this a try, because down, down they'll go. But you, you practice the walk of faith, and as you get bigger and as you grow in skill, there is more and more practice that needs to take place. And so uh, Paul is going to talk about that, and he says here, as he gets going, our motivation is this, to please God. That's our motivation. This, this was a church that was doing well. You know, every indication that we see from what Paul's written here is that this was a group that was like the model, the pattern to follow after. But Paul's directive is not a pat on the back, way to go, 
let your guard down. It's this. Do better. Continue on. Mature more and more in your faith. Now, I, you know, I don't want to assume something that, that Paul did. He's got something clear in his conversation with the Thessalonians already. And, and that's this. And we need to know it as before we move on here. That, that your walk of faith, your relationship with Jesus Christ is not about learning to please you. It's about learning to please God who made you and who is your Lord. You know, we talk about salvation being a free gift and, and it is, but it wasn't free for the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation came at a price, at a cost. And the scripture says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you're not your own. And so your motivation should now be, how do I please my master? Increasingly, God, I want to please you with my life. And when a Christian has that basic understanding, these instructions that Paul's going to talk about make more sense. That we exist to give God pleasure, to please him. And you think about that, you, you can do all the right things and have all the wrong motivation. We know that. You know, in fact, that is the danger of religion and us becoming religion where we have duty that is devoid of relationship with the Lord. It's possible to obey God and, and not please him because your heart is far from him. You know, I think of Jonah. Jonah's a great example of that in the scripture. You know, he, he ran from the Lord and when he finally got on track after the whole whale scene and he heads off to Nineveh, you know, he did what God told him to do. He proclaimed the message to Nineveh, repent, or in 40 days, God is going to destroy this city. But in his huffy attitude, personally, in the own attitude of his heart, he missed out on experiencing the blessing of God as God, like, worked revival in this Gentile, pagan, foreign city. And the people repented. You know, it, Jonah sat outside the city in isolation and felt sorry for himself and, and, and was mad at the Lord and mad at the work of God's spirit in the hearts of the people. He's mad at everyone. Did what he was supposed to do, but his heart was totally in the wrong place. And so what we're talking about here is having the right motivation as we do these things. Walking in a manner to please God. Pleasing him. Well, how do we know how to please God? Well, it's through the things that we are taught in the word of God. We get to know the heart of God. It opens up our understanding to the will of God. And so he says this in verse two. For you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So before we move on here, one thing we have to have clear that this is not the instructions of some religious leader, Paul, the apostle. This is the desire of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul is communicating to the church. In fact, the word instructions there, it's a military term. These are commands handed down from superior officers. Commands handed down from the commander in chief himself. You're in the Lord's army, soldier. And the soldier has to carry themselves in a certain way. A soldier walks in a certain way. You learn to obey the orders. The scripture tells us that no one who's in the army gets involved in civilian affairs because he wants to please his commanding officer. That's our heart. We want to please our commanding officer. 
And so when you're in the Lord's army, how do you carry yourself? Well, here's the first thing Paul tells us. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So some of the things he's going to talk about here, this is, these are not suggestions. This isn't like, hey, if you feel like it, you know, let's go here. This is military instruction from a commanding officer to his subordinate soldiers. What is the will of God concerned about? The first thing he says is this. Your sanctification. That's a big word. Your holiness. That, that you are set apart unto God and to his purposes. It, it, that's a, sanctification is a big word, but really it means this. That you're set apart. See, God wants us to be set apart from the godless culture around us. To live differently. And one of the areas where God requires something different of his people is in their sexual practices. One of the areas where God's plan for your sanctification and holiness touches just the practical areas of life is, as we're going to see here, he's going to talk about love. You know, your love is not to be lustful or sensual or immoral, but it's something that is to be pure. You belong to the Lord. He has purchased you. And you've been set aside for holy purposes, set apart for God's use. And so Paul just clearly says this here. Sexual immorality does not please God. Sexual immorality is just, I would define it this. It's just by definition, it's any sexual practices that that are outside uh, the boundaries of God's design. And God's design for sex is in marriage. And so immorality just speaks of anything that is outside of marriage. Adultery, fornication, homosexual practice, all those things, whatever it might be. You know, we live in a culture that's it's sexually charged, isn't it? It's uh, a culture that has set aside the compass of God's word and it is directionless in regards to sexual practices. You know, the rule kind of seems to be, if it feels good, do it. You know, the only boundaries many function with in this world is the desires of their own heart. And they do what they want to do with who they want to do when they want to do. And God forbid that the church stand up in the midst of the culture and call sin, sin. And Paul just says right off the hop here, sexual immorality does not please God. It is sin. Now, before we, you know, maybe make some mental leap to thinking that God, God is a prude, he's a moralist killjoy in regards to the matters of sex, let's just remember who created it. Let's remember who created sex. You know, if anyone has true understanding of sex and its purposes and where it is to be fruitful, it, it has to be God. And so God established a boundary and a safe place for that to happen. It's called marriage. He ordained the union of one man and one woman. And and God created sex for the continuance of the human race, but also, you know, for, for pleasure within marriage. And the scripture tells us that the, that marriage should be honored by all that the marriage bed should be kept pure and so God's commands regarding uh, sex, they're, they're not designed to rob people of joy. They're not designed to rob people of experience or fulfillment. 
but rather they are designed by God to protect your joy and to give you fulfillment within the boundaries of marriage. You know, the seventh command is thou shalt not commit adultery. Not a command designed to rob you of joy, but to protect your marriage, but to make it a place where God's presence can be. And so, you know, in regard to the issue of, of sex, God's will is not some obscure mystery where, you know, you go fishing in the dark, so to speak, to figure it out. It's totally clear. It is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. You know, I, I, I once had a couple tell me that although they weren't married, they had sat down and they had prayed together and God told them that it was okay to have sex. And I said, no, he didn't. He didn't. Because what you just told me is in total contradiction to what the word of God clearly says. Uh, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. And his will is so clear regarding sexual immorality that there's no need to pray about it. There's, there's no need to second guess it. There's one place where God gave the green light and it's within the context of marriage. And when he said, thou shalt not commit adultery, he was building a wall around the sanctity of marriage. Uh, you know, you never have to seek God's will uh, regarding sex within the context of marriage. It's a green light, man. It's a green light. It's go. But outside of it, the scripture is abstain. Abstain from fornication. Abstain from sex outside of the marriage. And so, you know, I just say, Inside of marriage, to those who are married, go nuts. I'm going to give you that freedom this morning. We can smile and talk about this. Enjoy the wife of your youth, the scripture says. And you know, Satan's scheme is this. For do you have to have sex outside of marriage and then to deceive you to have no sex inside of marriage? But God has designed sex for procreation and pleasure. And, you know, if you're going to procreate, then you may as well practice, okay? That is really the, uh, God's plan. It's his design. And when the years of procreating are over, you know, I encourage you, keep on practicing, okay? You can laugh. You can smile. You know, there's so much pressure in this culture that we live in. And, you know, it's, it's, it, if you're a parent, it's hard to watch your kids growing up as, you know, I can't imagine, you know, my parents raising me and now being in the place of raising my kids. And the culture is trying to train us and to train our children in its school of sex. You know, and we know the deal, man. It's infiltrating us probably like we've never experienced before through the internet and through television. And it's like, the foundations have been removed like we're talking about on Sunday night. And it's a, it's a free-for-all within our culture. Um, but one of the things that, that you can easily observe is that most of what our culture is teaching and saying about sex actually destroys intimacy and destroys safety in regards to that. You know, the most intimate and safe place for sex is in, a, is in a healthy marriage. And like I said, God's given you the green light. And so, you know, I wanted to shoot from the hip a little bit this morning. And that's always kind of dangerous. 
when you do that. But, you know, I was just thinking about when we went through the Mark Gunger series, Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage, and that was awesome. I got those DVDs. If you want to borrow them and never got to come and be a part of that, I encourage you to, to check them out. But, you know, he talked about uh, the, the sexual temptation and frustration that Christians live with in the midst of this culture because they're bombarded uh, constantly. And he, and he just talked about the idea that it's even hard to come to church and to show up and worship when you're struggling with sexual temptation and sin. It's hard to raise your hands in the house of God when you're feeling defeated in that area of your life. And he gave great advice, and I'm going to remind you of it this morning. He said, if you want to raise your, you know, if you want your husband to raise his hands on Sunday morning, then put a smile on his face on Saturday night. And, you know, I think that that is a good rule. So, you know, I told you it was PG. But, you know, I, I would encourage you and say, in your house, make Saturday night a date night, man. Get your heart ready to come to the house of God to worship. We could change the whole atmosphere of worship in our church just by, you know, applying that rule, you know. Put Saturday night on the calendar and men romance your wives for the week and come to church ready to rock on Sunday morning. No, you know, we laugh about it, but the truth is this. God gave you your spouse to sanctify you, to set you apart so that you could be set apart. He gave you your spouse so that you could walk in holiness. You know, husbands and wives, here, here's a thought. Imagine this about your marriage. You help one another walk in holiness before God in this area. And this is one of the key areas that, that God's design and his plan and his purpose for marriage is just so awesome. That we would learn to walk in holiness and, and healthy sex, sex lives within marriage it, it leads to purity of body and of mind and of spirit. It, it leads to holiness. And, you know, so for that matter, you know, maybe just for a moment, it's good that I address those that, that aren't married. Abstain from sexual immorality. It is the will of God for you. There's, there's no question there. There's no debate. You are uh, in a place where... You want to prepare for marriage and you want to be ready when God brings the right person along. And so lay the groundwork. You know, this week I, I ran into someone and we got into a conversation and said, man, it's tough on the Sunshine Coast being single and wanting to serve Jesus. And I said, don't lower your standards, man. Do not lower your standards. Abstain. You know, if you're in a relationship where you're not married, Take care of business, man. Go clean that up before the Lord and make it honorable before him and follow his design. And God's design is this, marriage. And sex outside of marriage, is, it's, it's nothing but a cheap counterfeit. I mean, it, it, it's like, it doesn't mean it's not good, <laughs> that it's not fun, but it is a sellout. It's a cheap counterfeit. You know, I just think of what it says in the Proverbs that it's this, don't, don't let your streams and your rivers run wherever they want to go. And that's what it's kind of like when you just pursue those things outside of marriage. It's like letting the riverbanks be broken and the water just goes wherever it wants and it's, 
floods things and destroys things and wreaks havoc. But sex within the context of marriage is like a river that has a strong shoreline and the banks are strong. And the result is that it can flow with greater intensity and blessing and strength and safety as you honor the Lord in that. He says in verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. So here's some, some steps Paul gives us towards uh, just uh, walking in moral purity in this area of life. And he says this, learn to control your body. Whereas what does the world say? People can't control their sexual desires. Baby, I was born that way. Well, I'm sorry. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says you learn to control your body. You know, as you age, at least so I'm told. No. I turned 38 this week. And you know, your metabolism changes as you age. You know, once where people used to say, man, you have hollow legs. You know, you just eat crazy. You have whatever you want and it never affects you. As your metabolism changes, that begins to change. And we know what happens. If you continue to eat like you did, you know, guys, when you were young with changed metabolism, you might turn into a Goodyear blimp. And so we have a culture that is totally diet crazy and is trying to train itself with this aim to learn to control the appetite. You discipline your appetite for food and you train your body. But regarding sex, it says that uh, it says the opposite. Oh, it can't be controlled. You can't control that. You can't bring that into order, but God's word says otherwise you can. And I believe, you know, one of the best ways to learn to control your body is through the practice of fasting. In fasting, you, you, what you're doing is you're ordering the priority of your life. You are communicating to your flesh. I value spiritual things more than I desire the appetites of the flesh. And you know, if you've got an area where the appetites of the flesh are out of control, it could be eating. It could be in regards to sexual things. Put your flesh in its place. Bring discipline and say to it, I choose over you the things of God's spirit. And so fasting is a, is a means by where we put the flesh in its place. Uh, not just in regards to food, but in regards to all things fleshly. Now, for clarity, just so that you don't let your mind go there, I'm not saying take a fast from sex. In fact, the Bible says that, the, that husbands and wives should not deprive one another of that. You should not deny your spouse within marriage. But there is a power in fasting from food that communicates to your body, communicates to the flesh, the priority of your life and the place that you give to spiritual things. And so Paul says, control your body in a way that brings honor to God. And sexual immorality is a, is a sin against God, but also against your own body because your body is a vessel, it says in, in other translations, that God has chosen, that he's purchased for his glory and honor. You're like a special, not only are you his temple, but there's this picture that it's like you're an instrument that he has chosen by which to put his glory in. 
instrument which he uses to work in this world. And you, you don't take this instrument, this vessel, and use it for holy things and then desecrate it sexually. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 5, not to live in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So the second step, the moral purity regarding matters of sex is that we don't live with the passion of those who do not know God. You know, that means that, you know, it means this, that there is to be a difference with how Christians live and act sexually versus how the world lives and acts sexually. Those who do not know God versus those who do know God. And the world takes a different viewpoint than what God, God's word teaches. And we, you know, I would say this. We should not be surprised by the sexual practices of the world. They're out of control. Of course they're out of control. They don't know God. But we ourselves should be ignorant of those things. Not have personal knowledge. They don't know God, but you do know God. And you know because you know God, more and more, you bring this area of your life in line with God's word. You know, I, I would say this as I read that. Is sin in the life of a believer worse than sin in the life of an unsaved person? And the answer really is yes, it is. Because we know better. We're, we're not under the condemnation of sin but we are also, as we're about to see here, as Paul's going to say, we're, we're not free from the harvest of sorrow that comes when we participate in such things. When we, when we sow to the flesh. Look at verse 6. He says this. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And so, what's Paul saying? Sexual immorality is a sin. There's a dreadful price to pay for this. And sin inherently has consequences even when God forgives it. Even when, when you take it to the cross and it's nailed there and it's covered in the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and he throws it into the sea of his forgetfulness, there is still a consequence that follows. You know, where my mind goes to the classic story that we know from scripture, David and Bathsheba. You know the story. We all know the story. David, while at home with idle hands, while his army is out uh, fighting the battles of the kingdom, lets his eyes be caught by a woman who, who's bathing on a rooftop, rooftop and uh, he takes her and he becomes intimate with her. She's a married woman. He's a married man. They commit adultery. And so the story goes that Bathsheba becomes pregnant and in an attempt to cover up his sin, not confessing it, not dealing with it, not bringing it to the Lord. David calls Bathsheba's husband Uriah back from the front lines and he tries to set him up, tries to get him to go and spend the night with his wife. And you know the story. Uriah is a godly, uh, faithful man to his king and to his country. And so Uriah is sent back to the front lines where David gives his military commander the instruction, put him at the front line and then withdraw the army and make sure Uriah is no more. David murders Uriah. 
And life goes on. Until God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. And in a whole great story. It's in second Sam, middle of 2 Samuel. It's worth going through that story again. But David, as he is confronted, he, uh, he confesses his sin. He pours out to his, his heart to God and God forgives his sin. And we have the great uh, Psalm, Psalm 51 that is born out of that where he pours out his heart to God. says, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Uh, And God forgives David's sin, but nevertheless, there's a consequence that follows. And the prophet Nathan tells David that the son Bathsheba has born is going to die. And you know the story. The baby dies. And David goes to the house of God and he worships and God blesses David and Bathsheba with this beautiful story of redemption. Solomon is born of their union and of of their marriage. But did it end there? No, it didn't. Because it followed David for many years. Yes, God redeemed. Yes, God forgave. But let me remind you what happened else in that story. Nathan also came to David and he said, David, you brought the sword into Uriah's house and now the sword will never leave your house. You killed an innocent man and now the sword will plague your own family as well. The next scripture in 2 Samuel tells the story of Amnon and Tamar. Tamar was David's daughter and Amnon was his son. They were half siblings. And the scripture tells us that Amnon fell in love with his sister. And, and in that culture and at that time, that, w- that it wasn't a relationship that necessarily would have been denied if he had just gone to the king. But in a heart uh, full of lust, Amnon went and he took advantage of his sister and he raped her. And she lived out her days as a desolate woman in the king's house. But it didn't end there. Because Tamar had an older brother, David's oldest son, by the name of Absalom. And Absalom saw what happened and he plotted in his heart and he took his brother Amnon and he invited him to his house. And when his back was turned, he murdered his own brother. You know, the the sword went into David's house and... uh, His son raped his sister and one son murdered another son. The scripture goes on because it doesn't end there. Absalom flees and and hides out and under a, a bunch of different circumstances, you know, he is eventually brought back to the kingdom, the king's oldest son. And there, back in Jerusalem, Absalom begins to work a conspiracy amongst David's kingdom and he begins to win over the hearts of the people so that he can steal his father's throne. And so when it finally all hits the head, David flees from the city of Jerusalem, running for his life with many of his trusted followers and Absalom uh, takes the throne in Jerusalem. And in that process, One of David's key advisors over all the years that he had served as king, a man by the name of Ahithophel, Ahithophel, joins Absalom to give him counsel. He betrays King David. And Ahithophel 
counsels Absalom and he says this, take your father's concubines and sleep with them in the sight of all Israel. And, and so just the, the adultery continues within David's family and war ensues. And the result is this 20,000 people die in Israel. Now, you know, as you, you read that story, this, this Athitophel fella, you know, why did he do what he did? Betray David and tell Absalom to do. Well, the Chronicles reveal to us why that was because Athitophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. He bitterly and unforgivingly clung to his anger against David for, for years, for, for decades. And then when the time came, he made sure he stuck it to David. And in the end of the whole story, Asitophel takes his own life. He hangs himself in destruction. See, it just, it wasn't as simple as a little act between David and Bathsheba. It wreaked havoc for decades within a nation, within a house. And you know, all the fruit of that adulterous act with Bathsheba, did God redeem it? Did he forgive David? Yes, he did. He did. That's how he works. But the Lord is also an avenger when a man wrongs his brother in this area. And David reaped what he sowed and it was painful. Look, the point is this. Why I tell that whole story? Sexual sin is dangerous. It is dangerous, people of God. And I, I find this personally sobering. You know, I, I want to preach to myself this morning. Because, you know, the reality is this. Jesus simplified the conversation in this way. He said, you, you heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks on a woman lustfully, in, lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so, you know, as the scripture defines it, we all, every single one of us is guilty in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We need his forgiveness. And we need remission for our sins. And Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross uh, for an adulterous heart like mine and like yours. And so, you know, I, I would say as we talk about this, it's, it's not that we need to look down on anyone. Even in this room, we don't look down on one another, but rather we point one another to the Lord Jesus Christ because that is where we find forgiveness and find redemption. Amen? George, can you open the back door? Man, it's getting hot in here. Maybe it's just me. Whew. Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So look, God has called us to something. Sanctification, holiness. And look, a child of God cannot continue in sin in regards to this issue. Look, the prodigal son, he went and he visited the pig pen. But then he figured it out and he went back to his father's house. A prodigal son cannot make his home in the pig pen. You made a visit to the pig pen, you go to your father and you make it right and you get it cleaned up. But you can't live there. And Paul says, look, you cannot disregard what I'm saying. He says, look, really? If you disregard it, you're not disregarding me, he says. 
but you're disregarding God. It's, it's his word that you're rejecting, not me. Even for you this morning, it's not my word you're rejecting if you reject these things. It's God's word. But the beauty of it is this. God has provided for us a, a resource. The only resource by which we, we can live in our bodies to glorify God. And it's this, the Holy Spirit. He has given you the spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit empowers the willing and trusting Christian to to overcome sin, to overcome sexual sin. And God has given us, he's given us his Holy Spirit. And our responsibility is this, is that we would draw on the resources that God has provided for us and bring the body under control. You know, <clears throat> as I read this, you know, I don't, I don't get the sense that the uh, Thessalonian church, I don't get the sense from this passage that the Thessalonian church was like out of control sexually. I don't think that's going on here. You go to Corinthians and you read about them. They're out of control. I don't think that was the case. But I think to them, this was a message of preventative uh, medicine. A warning for the church. A warning for the church that was living in the midst of a sexually compromised culture. Just like us. That's why it's important that we have this conversation. Because we live in the midst of a culture that is increasingly compromised in this area and increasingly pressing on those who do not hold its values, what those values should be. The scripture is clear for us. We abstain. We honor God. We live for the purposes of holiness. We learn to control our body. We rely on the resources that God has provided his spirit, his word. Verse nine. Now concerning brotherly love, you do not have, Need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Verse 10, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers, do this more and more. That's kind of part of the theme here. More and more. You know, the basic principle of the Christian faith. This is a basic principle of the Christian faith, but it's a, it's a good reminder. Our, our love for others is the second greatest command, right? First greatest, the greatest, love God with all your heart, mole, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is an area for us that as we follow the Lord Jesus, it should be something that should increase. Uh, more and more in our lives, we should love, uh, especially in particular, those whom, with whom we share the faith. You know, here's a real test of your love. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus? You know, the, the church is a, a, a place where Christians like to take pot shots and, 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 and punch the Lord's bride as far as I'm concerned and uh, take cheap shots. The real test of your love for God is, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, uh, Pastor Chuck, uh, his, his wife, Kay, wrote this beautiful book called The Privilege. It's about being a shepherdess, about serving God's people. And in that story, she talks about how uh, they had people over the years that they had conflict with and how 
as they learn to work through that conflict with one another, something happened surprisingly that their love for one another actually grew deeper. They said, man, you know, the, the ones that we love the deepest are the ones that things didn't always go easy with where we had to sit down and have tough conversations where, where we had to do it. But we worked through it and God did something awesome. See, the real test of our love is, do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? He also says this, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that no one may, may walk properly, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We're going to wrap it up with verse 12 here because time clock's ticking. But, Here's the aspiration he gives them. Live a quiet life. You know, when I think of quiet, it's just, it's that life that's, that's peaceful. It's calm. There's rest. There's real and true satisfaction. And, uh, you know, when life is like that, when it's, when it's quiet, it's just, it's easier to hear the voice of God, isn't it? He says, live a, aspire. If you've got an aspiration, make it this, to live a quiet life. And to mind your own affairs. That's biblical. Mind your own beeswax. That's a biblical uh, principle. A biblical truth. Now there's a, there's a difference between putting the interests of others first and then just meddling in their affairs. There's a difference. And it's not that we should, you know, uh, not be interested in others. It's just the warning here is that when we are idle, when we're idle Christians and we begin to pry into the lives of other peoples, we, we, we start disturbing their peace. We start disturbing our peace and our, our, our minds run wild regarding others and getting our fingers into their business. And part of learning your, to mind your own business, Paul says is this, get a job. <laughs> what a concept. Go get busy. You know, if you're prone to chatter, prone to gossip, then you should get to work. You could sign up for the church uh, cleanup crew, man. We'll, we'll put you on toilet duty. No, I say that lovingly. Look, it, it's this. Find something practical to do, and maybe it's providing for your house, or maybe it's picking up and doing work of the kingdom in this community or in this church. Work with your hands. You know, I... I I've watched it happen over the years is, is people don't have things going on. They get idle and, and life gets messy and it, and it corrupts their marriage and their friendships and get a job. Amen. You know, ancient Greek culture despised manual labor, but it's interesting. What did God send from heaven? A carpenter savior. He, he, he sent Apostles who were fishermen. He sent missionaries who were tent makers. You know, there is nothing more disgraceful uh, than an idle good for nothing who prize themselves into the lives of others. And so what's the instruction to us? Uh, live a life that's an example. Uh, get busy that you may walk properly before outsiders and that you may lack nothing. That's what he says. That you would be dependent on no one. You know, when we, when we love other people and we get to work, uh, it's appealing. It's appealing to this community. It's appealing to those who don't know Jesus Christ. 
when they see Christians who love people and work hard, show up to their job and, and get her done. You know, uh, work is actually not a, a curse. It's a blessing in the scripture. You, you go back to the days of the garden. Adam was given a job before sin came into the garden. He was given a task to tend for the garden and to care for it. When sin came, then as a curse, God added sweat and toil to work. And we sweat and toil. But to work is a good thing. Uh, the scripture says there's, there's, there's good reason. We, we want to prov provide for our families, but also we should have enough so that when others who are in need come across our path, we can help out. We can supply. See, the Christian life is, is, is practical. We're called to live holy, to, to abstain from sexual sin. Uh, we're called to have harmony in our relationships, in, in our uh, the way we respond to our brothers and sisters in Christ to be loving. We're called to be honest, hardworking, learning to work with our hands and not meddling in the affairs of others. And, and Paul says, do these things, do them more and more. Do them more and more because this kind of life glorifies God and it is appropriate for his people. Amen.